Welcome to the June 2020 edition of Discourse, our critical take on the category of religion in the news and current affairs. I'm Ben Marcus, your host, and today I have guests Professor Andre Willis and Carly Berrien. I'm very excited about our guests today, and I think you will be really pleased with our conversation. Andre Willis is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Brown University. He is a philosopher of religion whose work focuses on enlightenment reflections on religion, African-American religious thought, critical theory, and democratic citizenship as it relates to religious notions of hope, recognition, and belonging. Willis earned a BA at Yale in philosophy and his MA and PhD at Harvard in the Committee on the Study of Religion. He is the author of Towards a Humean True Religion and is currently working on a manuscript about African-American religion and politics, Afrotheisms, and post-democracy. He has published articles in international journals such as Hume Studies, the Journal of Scottish Philosophy, Political Theology, Critical Philosophy of Race, and Radical America. Carly Berriant is a PhD candidate at Harvard University, where she studies the history of American religions and politics in a global context. Her research focuses on United States empire and religion in the Pacific. She is currently working on a dissertation entitled For the Good of Mankind, Marshallese, Missionaries, Militaries, and the Making of American Empire in the Pacific, 1857 to 1966, which examines the relationships between Marshallese, American missionaries, and the Japanese and U.S. militaries during World War II and the early Cold War, when the U.S. occupied and administered the Marshall Islands and conducted 67 nuclear tests on and around the islands and their inhabitants. Prior to attending Harvard, Carly lived and worked in the Republic of the Marshall Islands. Today, we'll be discussing religion in the news in May and early June 2020. And wow, there's a lot to discuss. COVID-19 and religious freedom at the Supreme Court the eruption of religion and protests against police brutality and systemic racism against Black Americans, plus President Trump's response uh, with a photo op with a Bible in, in response to those protests, the possibility of resuming explosive testing of nuclear weapons, a development in the story about Norman McCorby, the plaintiff in Roe v. Wade, a landmark case about abortion in the United States, and more. We might not get to it all, but let's get started. Hello, Andre and Carly, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'd like to begin by talking about religion and the recent protests that have swept the nation. What are the most compelling stories you've seen that help us think about the category of religion and its role in public discourse? And Andre, why don't we start with you? Well, man, I appreciate it. I just want to say uh, both thanks to Carly and uh, also for you, Ben, uh, all your important work down there at the Religious Freedom Center, man. And uh, happy to learn and participate in this uh, in this podcast, man, I guess, you know, I'm I'm just beginning to get clarify my thoughts, I think, um, regarding what's been going on, man. And a couple of the things I think about, which might be a way to uh, sort of, uh, you know, catalyze a, a dialogue here is I think about the ways in which uh, this video of a uh, police officer in Minneapolis uh, murdering George Floyd, African-American citizen. But the way I'm thinking about the video now is as a kind of communicative act, right? It's it's representing a communicative act, the kind of ritual, right? The sacrifice of a black body for the state on behalf of the state, right? So then I ask myself, and of course, many others uh, have thought about ritual uh, in much more uh, well-developed ways than I have. But 
in this particular case, I raised the question of what is this police officer or this police force, right? That is a force that's legitimized and authorized by the state to disrupt, if it's deemed appropriate by state actors, the lives of citizens. What is this act, this ritual, right, trying to nourish? Or what is it supporting? What is it sustaining? Because we know ritual is never a mute act, right? It's both playing toward on a history and leading towards a kind of affirmation of a set of ideas. That is, like all forms of propaganda and probably pornography, you know, these kinds of rituals um, want us to feel, this is ritual in the pejorative sense, they want us to feel a single thing, right? And the thing I think this ritual act is trying to communicate, a now ritualized act is trying to communicate, is that uh, Black lives um, can be snuffed out, right? Um, and that the state is the force that um, can extend, can expunge these bodies, right? Just let me say one more thing. I'm sorry, Carly, I'm going so long. But but I guess I guess one of the other things that came up for me, and again, I'm still formulating this, is that the video is how the video can be thought of as perfectly matching the rhetoric of, right, the kind of contemporary uh, fascist or white supremacist right, ideology that we get coming from the highest levels of power, right? I mean, we all knew black folks were vulnerable prior to this, right? We knew um, the 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 kind of the undergird the narrative that undergirds right black lives. I mean, this is not new. So then the question became for me: Well, what's different here? And I think I've come back to this idea that what's different is that the act that was taped by that seventeen-year-old Darnella Frazier. Uh, which some people say should get the uh, an award because of how many folks this this film has motivated, this video has motivated. But the act perfectly matches the rhetoric. So that takes me back to certain kind of religious acts, right? Because religious acts at their best tend to be uh, in alignment with or craft an, an allegiance to Right, a certain kind of narrative that is the aesthetic acts have when the aesthetic acts match the rhetoric uh, that's extant, then we have a certain kind of power. But now what we're seeing is that power is being rejected by a kind of what I would think of as a global movement. Oh, there's so much to say, but Carly, I've taken up too much time, so I'm gonna shut up there. Hopefully, I've thrown out some seeds for you to uh, to proceed with. Oh, God, thank you. Um, No, absolutely never. I mean, don't apologize, right? The time we're here to listen and to learn together. And I think that, um, you know, first, I would say that I'm so grateful to be a part of this conversation. Thank you, Ben, for inviting me um, and Professor Willis for sharing right this space with us today. I think that what you're saying is so incredibly important right? Like so many people are stuck at home or they've been at home, you know, they're looking on their computers, playing on their phones um, because of this quarantine that's been resulting from the um, COVID-19 pandemic. And so people were all sitting there and this video came up of the murder of George Floyd and we all bore witness to that. And I think it's just really important to think about the ways in which, right, the visual medium 
has been so important to the communication and the fight for justice in the civil rights movement, in the anti-lynching movement, you know, spearheaded by Ida B. Wells Barnett at the beginning of the 20th century, and the ways in which there's just so much power in seeing and experiencing this um, with so many other people. And I think it's just really important that, you know, we ask the question, too, of what happens when we don't have that visual, like when we don't see, can we still believe, right? And can we still be a part of this? Um, And I'm thinking here about the Breonna Taylor case, right? She was murdered in her home in Louisville, Kentucky, when she was sleeping, when the police came in to execute a search warrant mistakenly um, and shot her in her bed. Um, And, you know, those police officers haven't been brought to justice, right? Like they haven't been arrested. Her case hasn't been resolved in a way that I think people are calling for right now. And so I just I think that there's something really important about um, the shared experience um, that people are going through. And I think um, it's really important to think about the power of that, the power of seeing people in the streets, of seeing police brutality, and of seeing these protests taking place around the world, um, much like they did during the anti-lynching movement in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and they did during the civil rights movement. And thinking about the ways that you know this is so uniquely American, but it's also something that really seems to resonate around the world um, because of the larger histories of empire and colonialism and anti-Black racism um, and exclusion that, you know, people are growing more and more aware of all the time. Mm. So no, no doubt. No, go ahead, Ben. Well, to, to add to this conversation and we can return to what was just being said, I, I wonder if it helps to consider President Trump's photo op with a Bible at St. John's Episcopal Church immediately after authorities forcibly removed protesters from the area and journalists reported continuing to smell the tear gas uh, lingering in the air. So the aesthetics of that, I'm curious, how do you um, sort of make sense of, or is there some similarity in, in what you're discussing, the aesthetics of of racism and and uh, the use of force against citizens in, in the United States? Well, you see, man, when I when I think of, you know, this kind of ritualization, ritual act, right, of violence against black bodies being in kind of perfect alignment with the rhetoric that that's coming from, you know, the highest office here in the U.S., I think then of Trump's act of standing there with the with the Bible right in front of that wonderful Episcopal church. Uh, as kind of connected to right the officer with his foot on the neck of a brother Floyd, and of course, and I appreciate Carly for raising the, the a few other names. I mean, if we wanted to mention all the names, we'd be here for the whole thirty minutes. But but I think of these things as kind of uh, co uh, co co mingled in terms of how they support right this. Um, this narrative of uh, of white supremacist ideology. And I guess, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is very quickly is that uh, Rebecca Louise Carter has this wonderful book about folks in New Orleans struggling with death. It's called Prayers for the People. They're struggling with, with death and post-Katrina, but also in terms of um, violence against uh, uh, Black lives. And she talks about being three times dead, right? She talks about this sort of support group for women in the church. And there's this notion that the the folks are three times dead, right? They were dead when they were 
they were dead to the world when they were alive. And then I think she says they're dead again, of course, when life left their physical body. And then the third one, they're dead once more um, because the world kind of forgets to mourn them. Right. So I think when, when Trump, you know, takes that act, so it's the, the officer like taking life from Lloyd. But then it's like Trump saying, I'm going to use the Bible and the tradition that this man came out of. And I'm, and what I'm going to do with that is not use it as a way of mourning him, but as a way of affirming how state power has generated violence against him and those like him. So I see these as two parts of the same, uh, as the same uh, illogic, which uh, violence is to me. It's always an illogic. But I'm not. I'm. I'm wondering what Carly might say about that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, the 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 image of Trump, right? So he, um, you know, for those people who might not be as familiar with the story, um, last Monday evening, right, people were protesting in front of the White House against police brutality, um, and he ordered the protesters to be dispersed with tear gas, um, so that he could walk across the way to St. John's Episcopal Church, which, um for the record, had been like, uh, had suffered like a minor um, fire in the protesting the night before. Um, and he held up this Bible in front of the church for this photo op. Um, and I think it's really important that he didn't give a speech at that moment. And so in not saying anything, he kind of allows a lot of people to ascribe meaning to that event. And so I think that's why we saw, you know, people like Franklin Graham, who's, um, of course, a Protestant evangelical pastor and the head of Samaritan's Purse saying, you know, oh, yesterday POTUS made a statement by walking to the fire that had been vandalized or walking to the church that had been vandalized and set on fire in the rioting. Um, God and his word are the only hope for our nation. Um, Johnny Moore, who's a spokesperson for some of his um, Trump's evangelical religious advisors, said, um, I'll never forget seeing POTUS slowly and in total command walk from the White House across Lafayette Square to St. John's Church, defying those who aim to derail our national healing by spreading fear, hate, and anarchy, and just saying, I will keep you safe. And then on the other side, right, we saw um, the Reverend Will William Barber um, the third, who is, of course, the head of the Poor People's Campaign. Um, and you saw the Reverend um, Marianne Buddy, who is the Episcopal Bishop of Washington. You saw the Reverend James Martin, who's a, a renowned Jesuit priest and author, all saying, you know, this is um, revolting. You know, this is a prop. This is not um, how we see religion and how we want it to be used. And I think one of the things that's really tricky there and what I struggle with sometimes and would love to think more about is the ways that scholars of religion can weigh in in a constructive way so that we're not just saying, yeah, religion can be used both as a negative and as a positive, right? Like both of these are authentic, legitimate expressions of Christianity Um, because right now, right, that feels uncomfortable. And yet I feel like a lot of the training in religious studies kind of puts you into that position. And so I'm curious what you all think of that. Yeah, I'm certainly interested in this conversation as someone who works in the field of religious literacy education and trains educators in the the disciplinary concepts and skills of religious studies, at least as the American Academy of Religion has officially pronounced it in their guidance documents. We, I work a lot with educators and train them to speak analytically and not evaluatively to talk about um, a diverse diversity of legitimate expressions of of religion, or at least to recognize that people speak about religion in many different kinds of ways and that the ways that they speak are culturally embedded. And so we really train 
educators to not make normative statements about what religion should be or what it is or ought to be. Um, and in these kinds of situations, it, it feels um, like quite a challenge to be telling folks who want to say, this isn't what Christianity should be, or this isn't what Christianity is in my perspective to then uh, not be able to make those normative statements or not try to vision what a, a future should be or what Christianity should be. Um, at least I, I recognize that there's a difference between the, the theological statement and the more critical statement. So it, the, the role of the religious studies scholar right now is, um, is quite interesting. And, and I've read a number of think pieces about this. I'm curious, Professor Willis, what you would say, you know, what is the role of, of the critical understanding of religion and, and, uh, a critical history of, of Christianity recognizing all of the ways that Christians have upheld white supremacy. Um, but as committed Christians, what, what, what might cr- committed Christians learn from the field of religious studies? Well, well I think you can uh, hit that on a couple of different levels, right? I mean, so on the one hand, there would be ways that, and, you know, certain scholars do this kind of work, ways that you would want to track, right, the ways in which whiteness have, you know, shaped certain forms of Protestant Christianity. What's what's the brother's name who wrote the book, uh, The End of White Christian America? Um, Robert Jones, Robert P. Jones. Yeah, yeah, that brother. I mean, so there are ways in which you, there's historical work to be done, theological work to be done, right, laying out the ways in which folks have used the Christian narrative in ways that comport with uh, white supremacist uh, ways of thinking, right? At the same time, no, I mean, for me, um, maybe a more broad approach um, that is might maybe a bit more appealing uh, to my own temperament is to think, again, something like uh, about how rituals are functioning here, how to kind of uh, maybe vi- the video becomes a kind of theological technology and that it, you know, is... Um, a way to allow us some some in some form of indexing, right? That continues to get referred to. So, I mean, you you could take certain categories from, in particular, Christianity, from my mind, because that's the tradition I'm I'm steeped in and I know most about, right? But you can take um, some categories and begin to think about the ways in which, if we think about this, let's say, as a communicative ritual, right, or as a technology. Um, this 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 video or this this act as a technology of uh, ritual communication. Like, what do we gain by using by thinking through the category as it's deployed in religious studies framing, right? Um, but then I think there's the third thing, and here I, I think maybe this is where your question was intending to go. Um, you know, how do we come out of again in our tradition? This is the Judeo-Christian and and all Western. Western heritage, right? How do we come out of a kind of prophetic consciousness, right? To kind of reclaim uh, religious sites of self-making, right? Such that uh, religion can be deployed for the kind of, as a kind of technology that I I, I am most excited about, which is a technology that um, helps us share what existence feels like from the inside particularly existence that's aiming 
uh, for a kind of compassion, love, loving, a connection, and giving? What does that feel like from the inside in the face of such vehement and vicious attacks from the outside? I mean, for me, the technology of religions right, are, 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 are spaces, sites from where this kind of question can be attended to um, in, in its most profound ways. I think that's really mm. helpful. That's and so important. Yeah. Carly, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that's such an important point. And I think it's particularly interesting when we see that play out on the national scene with public figures, right? So um, one of the responses to Trump's photo op was Nancy Pelosi holding up her own Bible and um, reading from the book of Ecclesiastes about this being a time for healing. Um, and, you know, um, the Speaker Pelosi and uh, Trump have, you know, a long history going back and forth, kind of trading barbs about religion and religious authenticity. Um, but I, I just I think it's fascinating to think about the ways in which the kind of conversation that they're having right and the um, symbolism um, of the Bible, which, you know, Mark Knoll, who wrote this wonderful book um, on the history of the Bible called In the Beginning Was the Word. Um, a few years ago, he talks about how the Bible is, you know, the most widely read and distributed text and object in all of American history, right? And so what does it mean when you see the president and then the Democratic Speaker of the House holding up this Bible, citing from this Bible? Um, and how does that kind of, um, you know, how is that heard or received or perceived by the people who maybe don't read the Christian Bible, right? Who don't identify as Christian, but still identify as American. And I just think there's a really, really um, powerful um, and deeply entwined history between, you know, white supremacy and Christianity in this nation, right, that Professor Will has just referred to. Um, and I think that they are in some ways doing more to um, uphold that than to dismantle it and to deconstruct it. And so I'm hoping that, you know, our work, or at least my work, right, as a scholar, thinking about religion and public life and the role um, of politicians and power, right, is to kind of challenge that in some ways and talk about the ways in which they're um, constructing sort of this, you know, very powerful monolithic um, identity of what is acceptable in terms of Christianity and American identity today. And I'm interested in one of the stories that you brought up, Carly, before uh, this recording, which is about the 75-year-old protester Martin Gugino uh, in New York. And I, I'm curious how that story illustrates some of the ways that progressive expressions of religion are ignored or obscured or denied, um, in particular the way that Trump's tweets about Gugino as a member of Antifa it sort of obscures Martin Gugino's deep religious commitment. So Carly, maybe because you shared that story, do you want to just introduce our listeners to the story and, and what it has to do with religion? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. Um, so Martin Gugino, uh, like Ben mentioned, is a 75-year-old peace activist, um, and he's affiliated with the Catholic Worker Movement. Um, which is an autonomous uh, collection of Catholic communities that was founded by Dorothy Day and Peter Moran in 1933. Um, and as many people probably remember, Dorothy Day was a very famous Catholic and pacifist. Um, and the people associated with the movement are typically moved in the direction of trying to, you know, create a society where um, there's no exploitation on the basis of race or gender or um, economics. They, um, you know, are protesting against war and discrimination um, and are trying to kind of create like a, a cooperative social 
um, order or like kingdom of, of God on earth, I would say. Um, and so we know that uh, Gugino was part of this movement and he was at a demonstration um, against police brutality for black lives um, in Buffalo, New York. And he, um, you know, some stories say that he was handing a police officer back like a helmet or something like that. Um, and he was knocked to the ground by uh, two police officers. And then the rest of the force kind of paraded past him on the ground, lying there with his head bleeding out onto the street. Um, and, you know, like we referenced earlier, a lot of um, what's really important about these um, protests is that they've been captured on camera. And so, you know, his video, the video of this interaction, this violence um, had gotten tens of millions of views. Um, and then the officers who had pushed him were um, um uh, like ex- uh, they were put on um, like desk duty and then um, the rest of the force kind of like resigned in solidarity with them. Um, and so I think that what's really important about this story is that, you know, he is part of a larger movement of protest, right? Like Anthea Butler, the wonderful um, historian writes, you know, we know protests work, right? The power of the protest is that they work. And so I would say that it's interesting that President Trump um, kind of decried him to be a member of Antifa, right? Which stands for anti-fascist um, because, you know, he is a, a pacifist, an avowed pacifist. Um, but I think it's also important to see this as part of a, a larger movement for justice that, um, you know, has unique roots in different religious traditions and communities and different expressions there, but also cross cuts them, right? This is something that, you know, he was out there um, with Catholics, he was out there with Protestants, he was out there with people who don't belong to um, a religious tradition. Like, it's really important, I think, to see the ways in which like this movement right now is interreligious, it's multi-religious, it's non-religious. And I think that in large part um, should be credited to Black Lives Matter, right? And the movement for Black Lives, which, you know, the founders, right, like Alicia um, Garza and Patrice Colors, they originally like intended it to be a movement that was working outside of existing power structures. And they intended intentionally elevated to leadership positions, people who would not have had those in other power structures, right? So women, um, queer folks, you know, it's, it's a really important way, uh, I think, to bring all these conversations together. Mm. No, I'm, I'm wholeheartedly on board with that, though, and I appreciate it, Carly. Uh, and, um, you know, this cat in, uh, is it Buffalo, this Gugino? Yeah. It's Buffalo, New York, right? Yeah, Martin Gugino. Well, I mean, you you lay that out nicely, and I think particularly uh, linking it to the uh, wonderful progressive Catholic history, right, Mm. Uh, and naming, right, not only Dorothy Day and that tradition, but the best of the prophetic uh, Jewish legacy and Protestant Christian folks, and even folks who we might think of as uh, humanists, right, everybody's out there, or secularists even, everybody's out there in the streets now because um, uh, certainly, this has not only reached a tipping point, but I think the levels of terror that uh, folks from all races and religions witnessed when they, as you said at the beginning, Carly, when they're sitting at home mostly under the conditions of COVID-19 already, the levels of terror they saw has somehow inspired folks. I mean, I think another kind of another kind of interesting link to ways I like to think about religion, right? What what mysterious forces, right, inspire people to mobilize, to get up off their couch, to take their lives into their own hands, even if they're wearing masks and gloves and what have you, 
but to come together under those circumstances to say we've had enough and this is wrong. I mean, it's those kind of mysterious forces that I like to think about as something uh, like religious energies, right? Energies that bind and connect folks against odds over traditions, you know, and bring people together. I mean, I was watching from Providence, Rhode Island, and, um, you know, we had our biggest um, rally ever, 10,000 folks uh, uh, gathering and, and, and marching to the state house um, under extraordinarily peaceful conditions. Um, and it was just what, what gets created then in that kind of uh, what I want to say is a binding energy or maybe a religious energy is then a kind of a power itself, right? And what some people might call a kind of higher power, right? The power in the group is how we talk about it in, in recovery context, right? And so then how do we then take that power and to continue to generate more and more um, a force, I guess, and here, I, and, and what I'm interested in is kind of a, a, a loving force, a creative force, right, so that we can extend the best of the various traditions that that you named uh, for a, a, a nation which may look hopefully very different than it's looked in the past. I don't know. These are just a wonderful sets of questions that you know, I'm glad to be here in dialogue with you guys on. Thank you. And with the remaining time that we have left, I want to just take a couple minutes to quickly go through uh, two other stories that I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least touch on. One is in this all this conversation about the binding energies pivoting to explosive energies, um, uh, not not in the interest of peace, but in the interest of terror. So, Carly, you brought this story about. Uh, that the Trump administration has floated the possibility of resuming explosive testing of nuclear weapons. And I know that it touches a lot on the work that you do with the Marshallese and with religion. So could you tell us a little bit about that and why um, at having a, a religious studies lens to think about nuclear testing helps us make sense of that? Oh, absolutely. And I think um, in part, this really speaks to like what Professor Willis was just saying about the power of the collective, right? The power of the group and the ways in which, you know, people can overcome enormous odds um, when they work together in that way. So um, I think the article I would bring up is the um, nuclear testing article that recently came out in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. There's been some coverage of this in places like the Washington Post. But essentially, um, in recent weeks, the Trump administration has been reportedly at least discussing the, re the possibility of um, resuming explosive testing of nuclear weapons, which is something the United States has not done since 1992. Um, and then there's a couple other countries like France and Great Britain, which were testing through the 90s. Um, and some other countries we know um, have been continuing or working at least towards um, continuation of nuclear testing today. Um, I think it's really important that uh, people understand that, you know, right now, hopefully governing some of this is the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which is an international treaty that bans all nuclear explosions uh, for civilian and military purposes in all environments. But of course, the United States has not ratified this yet, um, although they have honored it. So what I would like to talk about, I think, is one, um, the ways in which like the fear of nuclear war um, and like nuclear holocaust, which is how it's usually referred to, um, kind of really fits in with this vision um, of like apocalyptic Christianity that's shared by a number 
of um, advisors and um, personnel within the Trump administration. Um, and then, of course, a number of evangelical Christians who consider themselves to be Christian Zionists who are often um, supporters of the Trump administration. And um, Sarah Posner wrote a really wonderful piece in The New Republic a couple of months ago about um, Mike Pompeo and like the support um, for war with Iran and the hopes of bringing about like the end times, essentially. Um, and what I would say is that, you know, from my work in the Marshall Islands, where the United States tested 67 nuclear weapons um, and destroyed the land um, and the livelihoods of people and has not ever really adequately compensated anybody for this, you know, the Marshallese people, the Bikinians in particular, who were moved off of their island, um, have not been allowed to move back. Um, they still can't go back to their home island, uh, you know, 73 plus years after the United States started testing nuclear weapons there, you know, and the generations of people who have been exposed right in the Marshall Islands, um, downwinders in other countries in the Pacific, people in the United States um, living in New Mexico where the United States tested. Um, this is like a profound crisis for them because it's caused birth defects. It's caused um you know, all sorts of, of health and cancer problems. Um, and it's just a really, really troubling thing to see, um, you know, the government kind of saying, well, we're going to do this as a show of force again, right? Like, what is the optics of this? And what's important, I think, for me, um, is that when the United States went to the Marshall Islands to test nuclear weapons originally, they said they were doing it for the good of mankind, right? When the Marshall Islands was... Um, you know, the site of all of these tests, the United States was the only country in the world to have nuclear weapons. And yet they said they said they did it in self-defense. They said that they did it to create peace. And so seeing that rhetoric kind of repeated today um, is really troubling to me because of the obvious like impacts of nuclear testing and the human cost and the way that we have not adequately addressed that in the past. Mm. So, Professor Willis, I don't, I don't know. I don't Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, I'm curious for your take. I know we've seen a lot of language about apocalypticism in the last five, six months, uh, especially since 2020 began, and we um, have been living in this age of COVID. So if you could respond to that, talking about apocalypticism, nuclear testing, and perhaps also connect it back, um, I want to end with uh, COVID and, and what it's like to live in the age of covid and uh, the inability of some people to to uh, gather with their religious communities in person and the challenges that we've seen to these stay-at-home orders um, in the name of treating religion as a quote-unquote essential service. So um, I know that's a lot to, to put on your plate, but if you have any thoughts about that collection of things, about nuclear testing, about apocalypticism, about COVID, um, and, and religion as an, as an essential service, um, whatever that might mean. Yeah, no, I'm a try to. I really just want to appreciate uh, Carly's work on the Marshall Islands because I think uh, you know that's a a very rich site as she's uh, as she's made very clear for the kinds of questions. I mean, you're talking about not only uh, uh, extinction uh, of the human family, but the way these tests are being uh, deployed, right? They, how they can result in such health issues. And, and for me, this all taps in and I'll try to, 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 to wrap it up in the way you suggest, Ben. It kind of links back to uh, my, my, one of my early advisors at, at Harvard, theologian Gordon Kaufman. Remember he has the book, I think maybe in the mid eighties, uh, called Theology for a Nuclear Age, right? And one of the, 
the insights of that text that I took away from it was, you know, that we have to take more responsibility, right, for history and how a history is going to move, right? So, so he he wants us to, he wants to push us away from this idea of divine omnipotence, right, to this notion that you know God is a symbol, it's a construction of the imagination. Of course, he carries that into his later theology, but in this text, it's like, hey. How can we move away from this dangerous uh, deception that, you know, even a nuclear catastrophe would be supported by, you know, the um, all-knowing, you know, all-good God, all-powerful God that um, we we tend to um, find in a lot of the uh, Christian theological conceptions that are floating around uh, these days, right? So his charge for us to take a more serious investment in history and how history is un- unwritten and how history is open-ended, mm-hmm. and it comports with my own pragmatist sensibilities, right? That is, we create, we have the potential and the capability to be co-creators with um, not only one another, but with that which is greater than ourselves. But we have to be co-creators who are sensitive to contexts and conditions where folks are vulnerable. So when you look at, say, the case in, uh, was it Louisville, mm-hmm. where the, the church is, the, the folks called Christians, Christian of the On Fire Church, right? And I'm thinking now of that, that case that came in front of Judge Walker, also a graduate of Harvard Law, I believe. Um, and this is a case where uh, folks wanted to gather to celebrate Easter Sunday. And uh, I believe it was the COVID uh, rules of that state and city. And Carly, you jump in and Ben, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, disallowed this gathering. But what I found fascinating about the uh, the uh, the case, which the uh, decision was sent to me by a former student, uh, Brother Noah, um, was this idea that um, the the Christians on Fire Church, right, did not have, uh, in 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 the words of this judge, right, uh, he said the end of the uh, the end of the the uh, decision there. He says um, the, these folk don't have to kind of deploy rational standards or even uh, appeal attend to right the legal sanctions around covid-19 right these folk right it, it, they need to gather not because it makes sense but because these people understand themselves as operating upon another logic right um so the last paragraph of that of of, of the decision but, but for the I'm, I'm reading now but for the men and women of on fire Christ's sacrifice isn't about the logic of this world nor is their easter sunday celebration the reason that they will be there and need to be there for each other and their Lord is the reason they believe he was and is there for us. For them, for all believers, it isn't a matter of reason. It's a matter of love. And this was the way I end quote there. And this was the way in which the judge we see from a district court judge, right, this kind of um, move away from, right, uh, American law and the kind of precedence in the system of jurisprudence to this uh, logic that is beyond this world. And so we'll have to see how that plays out. But uh, my own sense is that um, we've got to uh, <laughs> stabilize and, uh, and, 
kind of uh, ready ourselves to continue to bring, you know, the good fight to the various forces that are aligning against those who are the most vulnerable, you see. And uh, this is why I uh, support the, the work of the Religious Freedom Center, Ben, and what you're doing and stand behind, of course, Carly's wonderful work there as a graduate student. So I'm not sure if I linked all that together, but that was my best effort at this particular time. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Carly, do you have any final thoughts? Um, I think I would just echo what you said, Professor Willis, right? Let us work together to create a more just world. And part of that is understanding the history that got us to where we are today and um, making sure that we understand, you know, the systems and the institutions, right? And these things that are larger than us, but also see that we have roles to play as historical actors. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andre Willis and Carly Berrion. I really appreciate you making time in the midst of a pandemic and national uprising, global uprising, uh, on behalf of Black Americans and Black folks globally who have suffered under systems of white supremacy. I I really appreciate you sharing um, your expertise and thoughts about how the a critical perspective about religion helps us make sense of this current moment. So I enjoyed our conversation. I hope our listeners did too. And thanks for joining. Thank you. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. <laughs>